Hi, everyone. This is Charlie, and this is the podcast To Hell and Back. Uh, it's uh, February 20th, 2020. I'm in Massachusetts. It's 6 o'clock p.m., a Thursday night, uh, Eastern Time, and, uh, and it's an unusual podcast. So before even start, and, and it's a podcast there where the title is DBT in the Era of Trump. And uh, I have to start out by telling you that I've already told you a lie, which might be consistent with the era of Trump, though I didn't mean it that way. The lie is that actually it's not Thursday, February 20th. It's actually Sunday, February 23rd. And this is a redo of a podcast that I did uh, three days ago about which I wasn't happy enough to post it. And so I'm doing, uh, I'm doing it again. So um, the problem was, and it's a problem I'm grappling with in this podcast, is that my usual stance is a clinical one. And I'll get into that more, but just to give you a, a, a preview of the, uh, of the problem, because I think it's not a trivial problem for a lot of us. And with a clinical model, I try to take a, a relatively objective stance towards the nature of people's suffering and where they're coming from, where it comes from, and so on, and, uh, and keep my own biases about some of those things um, not uh, up front and center. But in this one, uh, I have my own strong feelings uh, and my opinions of what's gone on. And I realized I was trying to wrestle with what do I do about that and at the same time turn to my main concern of this podcast. So you'll hear this play out, but I just wanted to, uh, to start by telling you that. I also, it's a little unusual for my podcasts for me to read them um, because I usually am more extemporaneous. I just have some notes and I talk, but actually because I'm really working on this to try to make something meaningful of it and useful of it, um, I've, written, I've written it out. So I'm going to read it to you. So I apologize if that seems uh, in a way scripted and, and more boring. I hope that won't be the case. So here we go. This is an unusual podcast for me to do. Usually I bring perspectives and strategies and skills from the world of DBT to the kind of emotion dysregulation and suffering and distress that come from personal encounters with traumatic events, from painful losses, from natural disasters, from pain, from addictions, or from illness. DBT was created as a system for reducing suffering and building a life worth living, and it grew out of the context of individual psychotherapy plus group skills training. It is a clinical model. In the next three podcasts, starting with this one, I will be suggesting how DBT principles and strategies and skills might be helpful for those suffering across the United States and possibly elsewhere from our national political dialogue, from what has become for many but not all, a national nightmare of watching the country move along a path toward authoritarian rule. In this first installment, I intend to lay out my thinking 
about the, you might say, the ground rules of how to apply DBT, a clinical model, to the psychological distress from this national political nightmare for those who perceive it that way. It requires some careful thinking about what my intentions are, about how a clinical model fits and does not fit, and how it needs to be adapted to bring uh, help to those of us who are suffering. In the second podcast next week, I intend to move more clearly into the nature of DBT's paradigms and principles and how we can use them to point toward uh, some psychological solutions to living through this era, being effective and remaining as wise and compassionate as we can be. And in the third installment, I'll be moving on to more specific strategies and skills and how they might be applied. So if you are someone who mainly is listening to this because you want some specific ideas of how to cope with this situation, you know, uh, I think you might find today's podcast interesting, um, but uh, kind of a lead up to the more specific things that will come in the future two podcasts. On the night of November 8th, 2016, I flew to Italy to teach a workshop. That was election day in the United States. And it was after I flew that election results were coming in. I could not access them on the airplane. When I landed for a layover in Frankfurt, Germany, I learned that Donald Trump had won the presidency. I was shocked and more troubled than I could remember about any previous election. I had a very bad feeling about it. It did not help that just one day before the election, Leonard Cohen had died. One era had sadly ended, and one was just worrisomely beginning. Long before the election, as a citizen of New York, from 1982 to 1996, though you could have the same perspectives that I had, even if you weren't in New York, I had found Donald Trump as a private citizen, as someone who had made himself a public personality and a businessman to be objectionable. As I saw it then, in my opinion, he was arrogant, exploitative, racist, and in love with himself and his name. In addition, I had the impression that he was profoundly dishonest, saying and doing things to enhance his public image with no real respect for the facts or the truth. He reminded me of kids on the playground or at school who were self-centered bullies, willing to be mean to demonstrate their superiority or control. I didn't like him, but as a private citizen and businessman, I could know about him, but mainly ignore him. I didn't know him personally. Then the campaigning began with his claims of birtherism, his racist, outrageous, and dishonest claims that Obama was not born in the United States. Like everyone else, I assumed he would fall by the wayside and that he never imagined he would be president anyway. He was using the candidacy, as I saw it, to gain publicity and to enhance his business brand. While he campaigned, it was hard to ignore him. 
his behavior was attention grabbing. He continued to be self-centered, to claim he was a genius, to attack his fellow candidates with lies and demeaning slurs, to try to attack and intimidate, demean and criminalize his general election opponent, Hillary Clinton, and to espouse an agenda that was racist and anti-immigrant while selling himself as the champion of those who had been left behind, the underdogs, the forgotten. It seemed so weird that he would designate himself as a wealthy bully, as such a champion, and even more weird that so many people in his base would accept that image of him. It was noticeable early on, in addition to the above, alongside the above, that he had almost zero tolerance for disagreement, let alone criticism. He had very thin skin and would react to per perceived slights almost instantaneously with harsh counterattacks, using blaming the other person for doing or saying exactly what he was alleged to be doing or saying himself. Because I had never met him, never interviewed him, and because he was actually successful in his way of life, I hesitated to diagnose him as suffering uh, uh, from a disorder. But on the other hand, it was clear that he perfectly fit the profile of someone with an aggressive version of narcissistic personality disorder with, with antisocial features. He had a grandiose view of himself. He was dismissive of any perspective that disagreed with him. His life activities and his use of all resources seemed to be in the service of his grandiosity. He rewarded those who were loyal to him and who shamelessly extolled him. He trashed and dismissed anyone who was not loyal to him or his grandiose image. He had no loyalty to the truth, but would say almost anything to support his grandiose self-image. And when asked who his role models or heroes in life were, it was stunning to hear his response that he could not think of anyone and then went on to talk about how great he was. It was an exact and decisive portrait of someone with such a disorder, including the hypersensitivity to criticism, that gave a hint that underneath all of the bluster, the hunger for publicity and the control, the lack of concern for factual reality and so on, there was someone who was prone to feeling small, inferior, and not credible. He became obsessed with whether he was seen to be credible as a businessman, whether his finances would verify that he was as wealthy as he claimed, whether his success in the election uh, would be credible, or whether it had actually been won by Clinton, and whether he was actually helped by the Russians in his efforts. When he won the presidency, I just buckled in for what I thought would be a painful four years, watching this personality continue to do all the same things, assuming that the apparatus of government and the intelligent people in Washington, D.C. would in some way hold him in check and expose his dishonesty and his grandiosity. I could not have imagined how things would unfold over the ensuing three and a half years up until today. I could not have imagined that he would continue 
to be so admired, and even more, that the congressional Republicans could go to such lengths to not comment on his most outrageous behaviors, his ignorance about the world, the atrocious comments about women, the obvious bias against anyone who wasn't white, and so on. And that they could offer such protection, cover, and support for someone whose values were so against what, what they claimed to hold as their own values. It still amazes me that they could turn a blind eye to his dishonesty, his cruelty, and his disregard for others, presumably in the service of their own survival as elected politicians, and in the service of their own political agendas, uh, which included wanting conservative judges, a decreased uh, regulation, decreased taxes on the wealthy, and counteracting the legacy of the Obama presidency uh, that they had disliked. I could not have imagined how relentlessly Trump would be able to exile those with expertise and professionalism from the government, replacing them with those lacking experience, with those whose only criteria was to swear allegiance to him and whatever he wanted to do. And while it was consistent with his promises as a candidate, I could not have imagined that he could so swiftly and so successfully withdraw us from the international climate change agreement that had been hammered out among so many countries and the Iran nuclear deal, which had obviously made us safer, at least in the short run, two decisions that would bring the world closer uh, to the obliteration of life. And in the course of that, that he would so blatantly and ignorantly discount the consensus of scientists the world over, and that he could do so with so little opposition expressed from within his administration or his party. And who could have imagined that he could succeed in this country as president in attacking Muslims, Mexicans, immigrants in general, judges, the entire intelligence community, including the FBI, that he could fire the FBI director and that he could so knowingly and practically in public cultivate and accept help from Vladimir Putin and Russia. This is a man whose extraordinary lies have been documented for all to see, even in one case changing a government weather map with a Sharpie to be aligned with a mistaken thing he had said. Stunning, amazing, disturbing, unimaginable a few years ago. In sum, who could have imagined the degree to which this publicity-seeking businessman from New York, with no evidence of caring for those who had lost jobs or were struggling, could convert this nation into a reality show, with him at the center, steering us away from democracy and the Constitution, overriding sacrosanct commitments to the rule of law, pushing his disruptive agenda with no decency or compassion, and that he could still have a 47% approval rating this week. It's crazy, and it's crazy making for those of us not in the 47%. Okay, enough of that. You can learn so much more about all of that from people who are experts in politics and history, people like Timothy Snyder, who wrote the book on tyranny and has devoted his career 
to talking about authoritarian regimes and how they come into being. People like Heather Cox Richardson and so many others who write and who appear on television. I am not a political expert, but before diving into how one might apply a DBT in this situation, I realized that I needed to state my observations, my position, my bias, if you want to call it that, because in this podcast, I am largely addressing the psychological distress of those who think more or less the way I do, perhaps something like 40 to 50% of us. Because those among the 47% who approve the president, while they have distress during this era as well, it's probably of a very different kind. It's probably a lot of distress about the way their beloved and admired president is attacked and discredited by so many on a daily basis. It's a very, very polarized situation. I realized that it would be useless to start out by thinking I could apply the principles and tools from DBT to be of use to everyone, regardless of where they stand in this polarized environment. So I am starting where I'm starting. Let me clarify my angle on this one step further. DBT is not a political model. It is not a commentary on national politics. DBT and my podcasts follow the path taken by Marshall Linehan to try to help those who face adversity, those who are in hell in life, help them spell out their goals for living their lives in a worthwhile way, get into their hell with them enough to see what it is like and to help them acquire and use tools to climb out of that hell. More technically, it is about helping people whose lives have left them dysregulated in emotions, in relationships, in urges and in actions, in their thinking, and in their senses of self. And it is a clinical tool to do that regardless of whether someone is a Democrat or Republican, liberal, radical, or conservative, from here or from there. It is blind to which side you are on. It takes off with the mission of helping each person to achieve his or her own designated goals. It does not dictate which goals they should have. DBT is equally applied, for instance, and helpful for those who have been victimized by domestic violence and those who have been the perpetrators of domestic violence, assuming that players on both sides uh, are affected by emotional dysregulation. This does not mean that DBT's values and principles are equally at home in all settings. I spent years adapting DBT to milieu environments, to therapeutic communities, and we strived to create communities in which people felt validated, in which we brought effective evidence-based solutions to behavioral problems in which we valued disagreement and diversity and opposition in our use of dialectical philosophy and in which we cultivated compassion through principles and practices of mindfulness. So DBT would not be equally compatible in all environments, but it can be used in the context of any environments, including prisons, emergency rooms, hospitals, families of all kinds, and in this case, with some stretching, the national environment. I bring DBT to this situation because I have seen, without having to look very hard, that the level of distress among many of my patients, colleagues, friends, family members, and my own, has been increased 
and shaped by the nature of the national trends and dialogues uh, intensified by the election of Donald Trump. This was already obvious in ways I will describe, but it has felt even more that way, more extreme, more challenging, and more distressing since the Senate failed to convict Donald Trump on either of the articles of impeachment. He seems in recent weeks to be more unhinged, more forceful and swift in seeking retribution, in getting rid of those who disagree with him, in taking over greater controls in government, and in putting himself above the Constitution, which insists on a balance among three branches of government, and the law. So some of the emotional responses to him in recent weeks, I think, have correspondingly intensified. In the past two weeks, for instance, two incidents stand out to me in my own local situation, unlike anything in the past. First, I was passing a young adult on the sidewalk by my office, and as he passed, right next to me, though not facing me, he stopped, he clicked his heels together, he raised his right arm in a salute, and he shouted, Sieg Heil, and then he continued on. Second, someone I know whose life history is such that it renders him vulnerable to situations where he might be hurt by people who are self-centered, controlling, and abusive, bought a ticket to another country to go live somewhere else. Neither of these events had come about in my presence before. And of course, they're just small events in one town that represent I think, the tip of an iceberg. I believe that fear is growing, is spreading, is taking hold, and is leading to more emotional dysregulation across the country about, among about half of the citizens. And that even though it is not a coronavirus, it is a nationwide epidemic, perhaps a global one, a pandemic. The center of the spread of this epidemic is reckless narcissism, disregard for laws, and disregard for facts, and aggressive attacks on anyone who dissents. It is spreading outward from Washington, D.C., as it does from other mm, settings in which authoritarian rulers take hold. And the country is, in a sense, infected and the symptoms are identifiable on the street and at the, in the home and in the workplace and in conversations as behavioral patterns that are the very same things that are targeted and, under, and accessed and, and seen in DBT. The epidemic is disseminated as information and disinformation through decisions, policies, social media, cable television, newspapers, and word of mouth. Every day, in nearly every news cycle, there's another trigger leading to distress. Each one, as I will address later, is capable of setting off a behavioral chain that includes emotions, thoughts, urges, and actions. And by looking at that chain, we can get some ideas about what the problem is and what the options might be for help. But another aspect of this drip, 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 dissemination of the central problem, is that the drips come so constantly, so relentlessly, 
such that the experience of many is of being overwhelmed by drips, by news cycles, by disturbing information. The overwhelming nature of this leads, I think, to more emotional dysregulation and to cognitive dysregulation, the interference of being able to process what's going on cognitively and to, and to think straight. All of which then is a bit paralyzing, leaving us all in a state where it feels imperative to do something, but where it's hard to decide what to do, which leaves many people doing nothing and therefore inadvertently lying down in the face of a frightening epidemic. For the 50% or so of us who are critical in the ways that I am, it creates a syndrome of nationwide burnout. Now, DBT. DBT is a model of assessment and treatment that helps people get more regulated and to approach their goals. At the core of the treatment is the treatment of emotional dysregulation, that is the culprit at the center of the problem, and it is that that can be worsened by our national situation. The dual values in DBT are to enhance compassion on one hand and to increase effectiveness on the other. It is constructed around goals, targets, stages, modes of treatment, agreements made, assumptions made, three paradigms, each of which has principles associated with it and a multitude of strategies and skills. It's an organized way to approach situations of chaos and dysregulation to create order and regulation. So while it's generally applied patient by patient, illness by illness, trauma by trauma, loss by loss, family by family, I have come now to believe that within DBT is a process and a set of ingredients that could be very helpful for those trying to cope with the psychological fallout of the evolving national nightmare. Another personal note. Within my family, I have people from both sides of this current polarized divide. I know them and where they come from. I mean, geographically as well as psychologically. I can see the validity in how they think even when I disagree vehemently. And I can see the kind of damage that the current polarized situation is doing to families and communities. We are not quite at the point as it was when the Civil War started, where the same families had within them both gray and blue, both South and North, both pro-slavery and anti-slavery forces, families that were torn apart as the war got underway. But it might be a cautionary tale to keep this in mind if things keep polarizing further. I was giving a workshop for a day in Syracuse, New York last year. And as far as I know, I said nothing during the day of a political nature, nothing to suggest what side I was on. It was a purely clinical workshop. And yet at the end of the day, a woman came up to me and said, Dr. Swenson, I loved your workshop and I learned a lot but I just want to say to you, please don't take our guns away. I was shocked. Uh, to me, this captured the current problem, even in a situation where politics was not mentioned. It's pretty bad. So my agenda now, beginning today and proceeding through the next two, is, is the following. Here's sort of the table of contents. First, I wanna spell out 
the behavioral patterns, you might say the signs and symptoms of the epidemic, this, the behavioral patterns that I see resulting from the type of distress I'm talking about, uh, to, you might say from a clinical point of view, to characterize the problems of the target population, which is a huge population as you heard here. Second, I'm gonna talk about how to apply and adapt DBT's biosocial theory. The theory in DBT that helps to explain how it is that the signs and symptoms come to be and are perpetuated, in this case, by the national situation. This step is gonna be important in finding the way that the overall national situation and the system of DBT intersect because the biosocial theory is a way to conceptualize uh, that actually finds where the, the two are, where the two might meet. Uh, third, I'm going to go over and uh, I'm going to apply uh, and adapt DBT's behavioral chain analysis in order to zero in on how the signs and symptoms come into being in a given individual in response to given triggering events, how it flows through that individual's behavioral patterns, and how that might highlight options where tools can be applied to help maintain sanity, balance, effectiveness, compassion, and to stay on track in one's life with one's goals. Then I'm gonna move on and consider the types of dilemmas that are created for individuals in themselves when coping with the current environment uh, that they live in, dialectical dilemmas, as they're called in DBT, identifying how it is that individuals are uh, experiencing and coping with the polarizations that arise within their own self. After that, I'll consider the three paradigms of DBT, uh, the paradigm of acceptance, of change, and of dialectics, and the five principles of each that I've spelled out in my book on uh, DBT principles, and how we can draw solutions or make suggestions of the types of solutions that might come from each of these principles, each of which uh, has a whole approach within itself uh, to problems like this. And finally, I'll go over a good number of specific DBT skills and how they might be useful in coping in the context of the current national situation and the psychological situations that are following from it. So, starting with the first topic that I mentioned, the signs and symptoms of distress. The DBT has uh, enumerates five categories of dysregulation, four, the, the four of which kind of follow from and interact with the central problem of emotion dysregulation. And um, I'm gonna use here examples. I'm, this is gonna be uh, a way of saying, here's, here's I'm characterizing the clinical problem that arises in the national situation. First category are dysregulated emotions. What, what, am, I, what am I talking about in this situation? The most obvious one is fear and dread, anxiety and worry that sort of grouping of problems coming from so many different angles. Fear and dread from the dismissal of the existential threat of climate change and the science that documents it. 
fear and anxiety from the pullout from the Iran nuclear deal bringing us closer to nuclear disaster. The fear and anxiety that comes from when we see our president cozying up to harsh authoritarian regimes, leading to fears that we're falling in that direction ourselves and that we will end up being governed by tyranny. The fear and anxiety as we weaken our ties with our allies around the world. The fear of what we see from a distance, but with a kind of unrelenting pace, of retaliation from the top toward those who disagree, those who challenge, those who speak truth to power, things that have been valued in our country, experts in their areas, professionals doing their job by just commenting on the truth, whistleblowers doing what they're supposed to do, and others in government who have dissenting viewpoints, like, for instance, recent example of Mitt Romney as a Republican senator in voting for the president's conviction on the abuse of power article of impeachment. Heightening the fear, which is experienced by vicarious exposure to these publicized cases, is the harshness, the swiftness, and the degree to which the retaliations can be personally extremely demeaning, and uh, along with uh, the firings and the demotions. Even this week, it continues, as the president has abruptly removed the director of national intelligence from his position in response to the fact that someone within his department did his duty and shared with the intelligence committees in Congress that the Russians are actively intervening to swing the 2020 election to help Donald Trump. He trashed that director who has a lot of professionalism and expertise and credibility on his way out the door and replaced him with an active director who has no intelligence expertise, seems to have a history of corruption with working with foreign countries, uh, and, who, and yet who, most important of all, is incredibly loyal to the president uh, in general and on television. This one situation is so characteristic of all the others that come to our attention, drip by drip, announcement by announcement, scandal by scandal. It's frightening what is happening, and even more frightening that it's happening in plain sight, and that the Republicans in Congress, almost to a person, will not call out the harm being done. There's additionally a fear of the strengthened emergence of white supremacy open denigration and attacks on immigrants, dramatic increase in numbers of hate crimes in this atmosphere, support for gun rights, including assault weapons, even after so many mass murders, and obvious racist policies. Two people I know who have this fear and dread, and then a sense of powerlessness, feeling what they read on the news is on the way to their own personal lives, have purchased plane tickets and one has gone to another country. Another set of emotions that I think people are coping with and, uh, and that, are, that are sort of dysregulating, powerlessness and helplessness. In reacting to the observation that almost all efforts to hold the president accountable have been blocked and he has been in his terms exonerated 
it creates a sense that no one is capable of stopping him, that those who collude with him and cover for him are winning out over those who see the situation as dangerous. It's as if there's a dangerous monster trying to destroy civilization as we know it, and it is seen as a good thing by 47%. It's a remarkable moment when the very same comment from the president can bring about enthusiastic cheers from one side of the aisle in Congress while creating fear, dread, and powerlessness in the other side. And the dialogue between the two is not happening. Other emotions, shock, surprise, confusion, disorientation, over and over again. Another set, sadness and despair when thinking that the changes being made might be irreversible in our lifetimes and will damage the environment and the country and the world for generations to come. Another one, disillusionment with, quote, the adults in the room and in the government uh, who show the willingness to look away from some of the egregious behaviors and policies. A sense of loss of a government that worked with more decency, respect across the aisle, and decorum. In sum, about emotion dysregulation, people seem to be suffering from dysregulation of fear, of dread, anxiety, worry, powerlessness, helplessness, shock, surprise, confusion, disorientation sadness, despair, and disillusionment. Next category of elicited problem behaviors, dysregulated thoughts and thinking. Paranoid thoughts, conspiracy theories, some concerns a la 1984, that the government is or will be keeping an eye on all of us, targeting those of us who dissent reminiscent of the McCarthy era in this country. Catastrophic thinking. We're on the, we're, we're, people have thoughts that we're on our way to a tyrannical state, to fascism, to a point where individuals will be given rights and privileges to the degree that they are loyal to the president, as what he has done with those in his government who are close to him is extended across the country. Another catastrophic thought. We're on the path to the destruction of democracy, of the constitution, of our institutions, of decency and respect for difference and diversity. There are realistic points, facts going on that support these kinds of thoughts, though the extra suffering that comes from these becoming dysregulated and one becoming convinced that they know that this is what's going to happen and that we're not going to have a, uh, a rise up, a resistance at a reversal. Another thought, the rule of law is giving way to rule by Trump and those close to him. We've gone outside the guardrails of the past centuries. Another set of thoughts, something terrible has happened, something terrible is happening, something terrible is going to happen and it's going to ruin my life and the lives of others around me. Again, one can argue in favor of these things, but at the moment, these are thoughts 
that really uh, disable people. Another one, the truth is no longer something we can determine. Uh, facts are whatever people say they are. There's been such a dramatic shift in the course of the last few years in relation to the truth that I think it's hard for us even to see that. That when people say things in public, uh, in the government, it's become routine enough that they are dishonest and that they are covering for things that you just don't know. And when Kellyanne Conway, as an advisor to the president, early in his presidency, made a comment on air uh, that there are facts and then there are alternative facts, it was just stunning. Um, and if it was just one blip at a moment, that'd be one thing, but actually it was so true that it makes it hard to determine facts anymore, especially things that are coming uh, from high up in the government. Another one related to this, we will never again know, another thought, we'll never again know who wins an election. Uh, so fundamental in our system. And now uh, the way things have gone and with all of the uh, tampering with the elections and the disbelief, there might not be another election for a while that isn't contested by people who are convinced that, it, that it's not honest. And there's understandable reasons that they would say that. Another one, I can't trust any decisions being made. You know, you hear, I, I find, I hear, and I don't know how many people do this, I hear almost any announcement made, even, one, even ones that sound very constructive, made by the president or his administration, and I hear them, and, and my reflexive response is, oh no, even before I know what the facts are. And of course, I might never know what the facts are. But it's uh, troubling to uh, have such reactive, reflexive responses such as who knows or can't trust that. I didn't used to think that way. I had that as a thought, but never as much as this. The thought, our government's gone crazy, doesn't help one get regulated. We're headed to a civil war, doesn't help us get regulated. And another thought, he has to be stopped by any means necessary, could set the stage for drastic behaviors that would make things even worse. Then there's dysregulated actions and the urges to do those actions, such as to run away, to escape, to hide, to bury your head, to leave the country. These are understandable urges and some people, for some people actions, but they actually just perpetuate the problem. Fighting, staying and fighting, and even violently fighting, even killing somebody in the service of that, are urges that come up in this context. Destroy him, impeach him, kill him, hurt his family. Of course, in that series of what I just said, of course, impeach is one that's absolutely within the law, within the Constitution. But you know, it can feel like some people could have an urge that every week there are things that should cause initiation of a new impeachment. There are those who uh, might have the urge to give up on their own life paths, uh, thinking, well, who knows? So we don't even know whether life as we know it is gonna continue the way it is. So I don't know, maybe I should just think about today. Um, then there's another category. Notice what I've gone over are, there's a whole packet of dysregulated emotions, of dysregulated thoughts, and now just dysregulated actions and urges. A fourth category is dysregulated relationships. 
because you can't have these other things happening and not have them creep into all kinds of relationship problems. So one, obvious, polarization among friends and within or among families. <laughs> In my own family, where there is this disagreement, nothing can be discussed. Uh, and there's a wariness uh, just being in the same room, worrying someone's going to say something. And that's true, I think, in lots of places, lots of, lots of meetings, lots of situations all over the country. Um, there's bursts of anger and argument between friends and within family. Uh, there's walking on eggshells. Uh, don't speak up. Don't get into conflicts. Just don't speak. Let's not have a dialogue which just enhances the sense that we are extremely polarized and we can't even speak to each other. So every time a decision is made of, I can't say this, even if it's rational and reasonable, it once again is under this same specter and it perpetuates this same level of polarization. Ending relationships over political differences, people who were friends before. Um, fear of those on the other side just thinking that I, I'm just remembering, what was it? Maybe three or four years ago. Forget if Trump had already won. Yeah, I think he had already won. I was in Houston to give a workshop. And with friends there, I went out to dinner. Well, we went to a section of Houston that was much more Republican and conservative than other areas. And we had dinner. And there's all these people there, really nice place, had a nice time. And the end of dinner, it just crossed my mind. And, you know, I'm sitting among all these people, and I bet that many of them are Trump supporters, which I have a hard time understanding from the inside, though I, can, I get it in many ways. So I asked my friend, David, um, how many people here do you think are like, would, be, would be voting for Trump? And he said, uh, probably 90%. And I, I thought, wow. Uh, and I, I felt, oh, no. And, and then I looked around, and I thought, these seem like really like reasonable people. These are people I would hang out with. These are people. <laughs> and it's just a stark reminder of how quickly you can go from just relating person to person in your life to feeling that you're in the camp of the enemy, which is a way of thinking and a way of relating that perpetuates the problem. And finally, this final category of dysregulation of a behavioral pattern, you might say, it's an internal behavioral pattern, which is the pattern of the sense of self. So there are certain ways I think that the people's senses of self have been undermined or distorted by this environment. One, that, that one is in danger, uh, that one is in uh, the enemy camp, one is in a polarized situation, one doesn't know where things are going. So there is kind of like a tenuous hold on one's own agency, one's own stability and confidence and safety. Next, and unrelated to it, but the opposite in a way, that the self experiencing oneself as dangerous because you find yourself filled with anger and, and intentions towards uh, people, quote, on the other side that really can make you feel like, gee, I've never been this way before, but some people I think are very stirred up and their identity shifts to feeling not only are other people maybe dangerous, but they themselves might be. Third, experiencing oneself as passive and complicit uh, and weak, uh, not doing anything, 
which normally would be okay, other than doing one's normal things and normal things related to the government. But right now, one could start to feel very bad about oneself to be not taking a position that's more active. One could, I think this would be less frequent, but one could blame oneself for things getting worse. Uh, and it might be that that's more common than I think, because people who aren't doing things, who aren't speaking up, who aren't taking active steps, who aren't supporting any candidates, who aren't doing any of those things. And finally, the self as being split or confused um, because of finding yourself acting so different with one set of people than with another set of people. I think that's partly why at the beginning of this podcast today, I just felt I needed to come out and say, here's my experiences, here's my opinions of what's going on, what you might call my biases um, going on, and putting it out there because then it gives me a, more of a freedom to... Uh, to feel like I know where I stand, I know what I think, and yet I can also be, have my ear open to what the other side is going through. Moving on now, the biosocial theory in DBT, which is how to explain these various things that I just went over, all of these dysregulated uh, phenomena in oneself. Um, what's the theory of how that comes about and adapting from DBT? So the basic concept is that dysregulated, and problematic behaviors come out of a transaction between a vulnerable individual and an invalidating environment, or an environment that has many features that are invalidating, and for that person in particular, per a pervasive experience of invalidation. Notice in this that the same environment, so to speak, is not really the same for different people. We have shared environments, like let's say the national environment, where some people within that environment can feel absolutely invalidated by that environment, just the way someone could feel in a family very invalidated, whereas someone else in that na nation or someone else in that family could not feel that bad at all. So it isn't like this is uh, across the board, you can name this is an invalidating environment in most cases, unless it's extreme. Uh, it's, it's personal. It's a transaction with one person. So the same overall environment, uh, I just want to make the same point. Now, what about, what's the vulnerable, what's meant by the vulnerable individual in the invalidating environment? Well, I think one thing that renders individuals vulnerable is due to historic causes. An individual may have experienced pervasive invalidation as a child, in a family, in a school, teased by bullies, hurt in social media, and that has now become part of the internal experience and internal environment of that person, which now renders that person vulnerable to current environments that have the same features. So I would guess that within the current national environment, there are certain people more vulnerable than others uh, for lots of different reasons, but one reason being if they have a history of being bullied, controlled, victimized, lied to, all of these things that mirror what I'm talking about in the environment. Um, now, in addition, individuals who never were exposed to many of those kinds of environments and don't have that kind of childhood-based vulnerability could become sensitized, uh, vulnerable, and repeatedly triggered in the current environment, especially if they're vulnerable to the above-listed dysregulation of emotions. They might, you know, if somebody's prone to anxiety, uh, prone to fear, uh, prone to shame. Oh, by the way, I didn't mention shame. 
in the list of, um, of emotions. And actually, I think there's a lot of uh, sense of shame among people who feel they can't be proud anymore of their country in the way that it comes across. And, and you know, the way if you go to a restaurant in a family and, and, and the father in the family mistreats the waitress and acts like kind of a big jerk, one could feel that way in our country right now and have a sort of a general or pervasive sense of shame. Um, now, even people who are not typically very vulnerable, especially, could over time, and if they have the sense that the clouds of tyranny are darkening and taking over, could acquire vulnerabilities that are similar to those who have been personally traumatized in the past. So it leaves no possible person uh, out. Uh, anyone can become, if an environment becomes frightening enough, uh, vulnerable. And over time, uh, the vulnerabilities that someone has, if they remain in back and forth, back and forth, drip, drip, drip transactions with the environment, can become more and more sensitized, more and more vulnerable, and the vulnerabilities can be magnified uh, just as, in return, the invalidating features of the environment can get worse. And you could watch this happen between Trump, if you think of him with certain people who are dissenting with him and how things go back and forth between him and them, you can see them getting worse and him getting worse and them getting worse and him getting worse. And that's part of the theory is there's this transaction that goes on. So what are the invalidating features of the current national environment? I'm gonna make preliminary comment and then, uh, and then I'm, I'll move on next podcast to continuing uh, along this agenda. Okay, if one is triggered by the kinds of triggers that I'm going to enumerate below, meaning next week, if one finds those incidents to be personally invalidating, and then you add to the invalidation and vulnerabilities, uh, and, and, and they arrive, which arrive every day, drip, 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 through media reports, speeches, social media, etc. cetera, uh, that's... Uh, so the environment is invalidating in that there keep being these incidents, there keep being these things. It seems constant, relentless, and hard to keep up with. I think that kind of nonstop drumbeat creates a sense of overwhelm that I've already mentioned, of burnout, and a reduced capacity to sort out what's going on and what's one's rise response to these things. That, that alone has led me personally to try to create space in my own mind, my own day, my own life, so that I am not constantly fixed on the next piece of news where I actually don't get time to process what has already happened. So just spacing things out and making sure you don't get uh, addicted to your phone and to news sites and to everything that's going on, to have your way of backing off from that and processing it. If each triggering event is seen as a raindrop, the overall experience includes the pervasive presence of dark clouds from which the raindrops come, taking over more and more of the sky. All right, look, it's actually been about an hour. I thought I'd get a tiny bit further, but here's where we're at. I think you've get some perspective. I hope this lays out some of the groundwork that makes it really possible in the next two podcasts to get hold of um, and make use of uh, suggestions. 
I also welcome, as I always do with podcasts, but really do with this one, which I consider a work in progress and a little bit outside my usual comfort zone, any input from, from anybody by email uh, to my email address, C, which is C dot, the letter C dot Robert dot Swenson at gmail.com or through my website where you can send me an email. I love getting in input. I've, got, I've gotten a lot of input more and more over time. And this topic in particular, I would love to uh, hear what you think uh, and what you think of this way of putting it and, and see what you think. I, tell me what you think I'm leaving out of it or not getting right, okay? I hope you all have a, a really good uh, week. And I plan to be on next time, uh, actually on Thursday, uh, whatever that would be. I think that's going to be the 27th of February at six o'clock. Uh, and you can find that at my website if you want to listen live. And of course, you can pick it up later otherwise. So thanks for listening. Um, take care. Bye.